Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS Growth Practice Solutions for Business Development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest uses her 20 years of experience in human-centered design, agile project management, strategic communication, and the practice of law to help law students, legal professionals, and legal educators skate where the puck is going. An adjunct professor at Vanderbilt University Law School teaching a program on law and innovation and chief operating officer, chief design officer, and co-founder at Legal Alignment, a company focused on legal workflow through process management training and global certification, Kat Moon, welcome to Left Foot. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Kat. Let's jump right into our questions. You represent more than one organization, and I definitely want to touch on both. Let's start with your work focused on human-centered design. In your bio, it says that you teach law students how to solve legal problems creatively by thinking like a client and not just a lawyer. That goes along with our teachings here at Left Foot. Can you talk about how human-centered design is incorporated into that point of thinking like a client and not just a lawyer? Absolutely. So um, human-centered design kind of from a 30,000-foot view is a process that was popularized by the design firm IDEO. And a lot of industries have been using it for a number of years to successfully design both services and products to great success. Apple uses it to design all of the devices to which we are addicted, along with many other industries. And it really essentially requires very simply putting the people you're designing for at the center of that process and starting from a point of empathy, starting from essentially placing yourself in the shoes of the people you're designing for. And it really is such an incredibly powerful tool for those who are delivering legal services. It really makes so much sense in the design and delivery. And also, I think, interestingly, comports completely with our rules of professional responsibility. And we are to put our clients at the center of all we do. And that is at the heart of human-centered design. So to me, it's um, really a fantastic lens. It's both a process and a set of tools and a set of mindsets. And I'm, I'm happy to kind of dig into any of those pieces or parts that may be of interest to your listeners. Uh, but it really makes so much sense to add it to our toolbox as lawyers. There you go. So tell me, because of course, a lot of our guests, our partners that are listening in and our legal professionals listening in, they're very interested in connecting with their clients. And in that sense, really understanding the business issues that the client is dealing with. How would you specifically use that skill to either engage more intently with a client or to basically have them explain to you the specific outcomes they're looking for? How would that tool, could that tool be used for that? And how would it be used for that? Yeah. So, you know, human-centered design is a collection of mindsets in part. And one of the core mindsets is curiosity. Another core mindset is empathy. 
And when you combine those two things, that requires the lawyer, for example, to really put herself in the shoes of the client and then essentially be endlessly curious about the client's situation and to learn the fine art of asking excellent questions and really listening intently and deeply for a long, long time before you start to jump in and offer solutions. And it really is quite phenomenal once you make that shift in mindset to be an attentive and deep listener first, what you are able to gain and the knowledge you gain to really make you um, an incredibly indispensable advisor to a client. No, I absolutely agree. And we hear that curiosity and we hear that desire to really understand the client, to get to know their clients better and to have their clients use them as the trusted advisor. Good lead into the next question because we're so interested on what is going on in the legal profession today. There is so much change going on. And it really is, I think, exciting for the market to know that there's technology and there's tools and there's a lot of new roles being created within at least in-house legal departments and, of course, as well within law firms. In your course at Vanderbilt, it's called Legal Problem Solving. I'm assuming you definitely use that human-centered design in that teaching. How does that coursework really prepare the lawyers you're working with for roles within firms, within in-house legal departments? So it's designed specifically to prepare them for those rules, of course. That is the job of legal education. And a primary purpose of the course is to give my students the opportunity to collaborate, ideally with a cognitively diverse team, and to develop those skills that come with problem solving as part of a collaborative team. That is not something that happens in law school very often. And it happens in real life, in real practice a lot. And so I think that that is an area that law schools must work to improve. And that's a primary objective of my course. So the notion of radical collaboration, and that is bringing together a group of people, a group of professionals who are all experts in their own ways, but approach problem solving differently. It's called cognitive diversity. And that simply means you've got people who were trained in their disciplines to approach problem solving in a different way. Law school trains lawyers to solve problems by thinking like a lawyer. So if you get 10 lawyers around a table, those 10 people, really regardless of where they went to law school, received essentially the same exact training for problem solving. And so they're going to approach solving the problem in the same exact way. There is a growing body of research that is establishing very clearly that when you bring together a team that is cognitively diverse and so therefore approaches problem solving in different ways, they reach a better solution more efficiently. And knowing that, from my perspective, it seems to be really a disservice to clients to continue to try to solve problems simply by getting a group of lawyers around a table. So part of my goal with the course is teaching my students that the world does not exist in a dichotomy of lawyer and non-lawyer. The world exists with a group of very able and highly trained experts in different areas who can come together and help them solve client problems more effectively and more efficiently. So I really work to break down that lawyer-non-lawyer dichotomy, which is set as a mindset in law school, unfortunately and encourage the students to really embrace the idea of working on a team with people who might not be trained as JDs, but that is the power 
working with cognitively diverse people brings to solving client problems. And you see this, I think some firms are definitely experimenting with putting together teams that might have a data analyst, a systems engineer, a process improvement person, a legal project manager. None of those people are likely trained as JDs. They're trained in different disciplines with different tools and different skill sets. And so the richness that brings to the problem solving benefits clients tremendously. No, I absolutely agree. We've definitely heard that from firm leadership. I was actually just at a presentation where Heidi Gardner spoke, and it was a panel discussion. There were two major law firm heads there, and they both talked about their client teams and their client teams being made up of other professionals in the firm along with the legal teams and how that cross-thinking was working so well with their clients. And it's interesting, Kat, because it goes along with a lot of press we're seeing and definitely what we know that goes on in these innovation labs at Google and other organizations where they have psychologists and artists. And to your point, you know, Apple would be one of those organizations that would do something like this, but where they gather people with different skill sets and try to design and think differently about a process. Great to hear that that is part of the program that you're educating on. We hear often that legal education is somewhat tagged with being a step behind. It's nice to hear something that's a step ahead. Vanderbilt's program on law and innovation is in its fourth year, I believe. And so it is a core grouping of courses that are geared to really prepare law students for practice in the 21st century. Over and over, we hear from folks really across the legal spectrum, not simply in big law, but in mid-sized firms and even smaller firms, they are simply having trouble finding lawyers with these broader skill sets because law schools are not training them. A lot of these things are new in the practice, so firms really aren't developing these skills in a very quantifiable way. And firms are increasingly realizing that their lawyers, or at least some of their lawyers, need a more diverse set of skills. Of all the nuance of skills that need to be part of the toolkit, what do you think is the most, you know, possibly the the top skill that is new to the curriculum that wasn't previously taught that you see being a critical skill to have for these lawyers as they enter practice? I think at this point in time, the most critical skill to get at just the base level to scaffold from is to understand and start engaging with and practicing the tool set of human-centered design. Because at its core, again, is curiosity and empathy. So if as an attorney, you are approaching your work as a highly curious and empathetic human then you are primed to be interested in and ready for all the new stuff that's going to continue to come down the pike. So I won't say that every lawyer needs to understand blockchain with really any sense of nuance because we don't know what the purpose and meaning of blockchain is going to be in coming years. And right now, it's a really hot thing. It's still very nascent. I'm somewhat skeptical of some of the proposed uses. I'm fascinated by it. And I do help lawyers understand the technology, how it impacts practice, and how it may be impacting the industries of their clients. But I wouldn't suggest that all lawyers need to jump on the bandwagon to learn the latest technology. I think if you approach your practice from a point of view of incredible curiosity and empathy for the clients you're serving, then you're going to be positioned to take whatever comes at you. And frankly, we're just going to continue to experience 
more and more new and change. I think we're just at the tip of an iceberg in terms of the forces that could shift how legal services are delivered and how clients are served. And so there's not a list of mastery. To me, it's how do you approach being a lawyer? And if you approach it in that way, then you are going to stay ahead of the curve. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. You and I have the pleasure of being out in the market in in a sense of we get to listen to educators, we get to listen to thought leaders in this space, read about them, talk to them, engage with them. I'm involved with CLOCK and a number of other groups, and it's very energizing, right, to hear both what in-house teams are doing, to hear what's happening at schools, to hear what's going on in the world of legal tech. And then I talk with some firm, not some, not all, but some firm partners or firm leaders, and I hear a very different message. How is this being absorbed and embraced? In your opinion, you know, what kind of feedback are you getting when, say, you're presenting to a group of established firm members about the work that you're doing? Is most of the feedback positive? If not, what are you hearing from them that might be surprising based on the current state of what's happening in the legal industry? What are you hearing? What kind of feedback? Depends on who I'm talking with. So let me expand on that a little bit. I can tell you that I was last week in Toronto. I conducted a legal design workshop for the CCCA's annual conference. And so I had, I think, about 60 folks in my workshop, which is a rather large one. And we went through a design sprint. And I will tell you that room, every single person in that room was incredibly engaged and energized. And my workshop was right after lunch, which is sometimes a challenge from a timing perspective. And, you know, it was a self-selected group, right? Folks looked at the schedule and chose my workshop over other options. So I think folks came in there curious and interested in learning. And I gave them a very specific process for it's called a lightning decision jam. I gave them this very specific constrained process that is phenomenal for a team using to come up with some really innovative approaches to a challenge, challenge they face or an opportunity they see. And we took the teams through this process. And at the end, they were incredibly energized. I had a number of participants come up to me and say that they will take this and use it in their departments and felt that it was a couple of people said it was the only practical thing (laughs) they experienced, which is really, frankly, sadly, not uncommon when it comes to the 
the delivery of typical continuing legal education, right? A lot of it is one-to-many, just I'm delivering information, not an interactive experience. So when I have an audience that is already predisposed to being curious about the process and how it might be helpful to them and their firm or their organization, then the engagement level is off the charts. We did a similar sprint at the conference I co-organized and hosted at Vanderbilt on April 30 at the Summit on Law and Innovation. And again, the room was off the charts, engaged and energized, but a self-selected group. I have spoken to groups who were not there really to engage because of the presentation I was asked to give, right? Not my choice, but can you please come talk to us about design thinking? Well, frankly, talking to someone about design thinking is not very interesting or helpful. Folks have to do it. And so if I'm just talking and trying to convey and describe, that really isn't incredibly helpful. And so the level of engagement is just not going to be as high. I very rarely get pushback that I would consider negative or completely unwilling to embrace. I think by and large, every single attorney that I've ever worked with wants to do better and wants to serve their clients better. We are a really driven and smart group of people and we want to do better. Now, we have a whole lot of constraints. And so ultimately, the people who are most likely to take what I teach and actually implement it are a smaller group because of what that requires. But that in some ways is the nature of innovating in the practice of law, right? I think I see, you know, I've been practicing for 20 years. I've been helping people do better and be better in their practice for probably the past 10 of those years. And in some capacity, in addition to my law practice and I see there's a continuum. On either side of the continuum are the people who are most likely to embrace doing things new and better. And those are, on one end, the folks who really are facing some serious challenges. It is a firm that is really perhaps even in distress for a whole host of reasons. And you've seen that since the Great Recession, the situation some firms have found themselves in for obvious reasons. Those people really have no choice but to figure out how to do things differently. And so those people are more likely to embrace these different ways of thinking and really run with it. On the other end of the spectrum, you have folks who are already knocking it out of the park. And these are people who are continuously innovating and continuously improving how they do their work, how they deliver their services. And because they have the mindset of a continuous improvement, and because As an organization, they have the culture of curiosity already embedded and baked in, then they just keep going. There is no end to what better can be. So I see those two ends of the spectrum really embracing all of these things. The folks in the middle, you know, there's interest, but, you know, I practiced for 20 years. It is really hard, frankly, to do things differently and sometimes just keep your head above water. And that goes for an individual attorney and it can also go for a practice group or an entire firm. So I don't think we can minimize how hard it can be to really meaningfully shift the way we work. You mentioned that when a lawyer, a firm, a practice is in distress, 
that this could be a way to address some of that distress and say it that way. And, you know, when I think about this, I think of new practices that affirm a practice a professional can implement that would have an effect on how they differentiate themselves in front of clients. Can you address both of those things? The first being how long that would take to really have an impact? Could it have some immediate impact? Is it clearly something that could be used? A different way of thinking, a different way of approaching the work, more human-centered, more curiosity-based, a way that it could be used as a differentiator with clients. Absolutely. The primary goal of human-centered design is to put in the delivery of legal services is to put the client at the center. So if you have a firm that is a group of attorneys who have been practicing head down the way they were taught by the partners who trained them 10, 15, 20 years ago, that group of people is not going to be as client-focused as they could be or should be for a whole host of reasons. If you take that group of people and reorient how they interact and deliver services with clients by putting clients at the center, it will completely transform how that work is delivered. And I can confirm from helping folks go through this transformation that the transformation is substantial both from the client's perspective and from the lawyer's perspective. And I point that out because I think we have to acknowledge people really need some motivation to change, right? I think that it's simply not enough to say, you've got to serve your clients better, so you must do things differently and here, do it this way. I think as a profession, we are a group of really smart, driven people. We are also a group of people who tend to be much more depressed and addicted and frankly, according to the statistics, suicidal than the average person. And so I think we also are dealing with a profession that isn't terribly healthy in a lot of ways. This is obviously a generalization. There are a lot of very happy, healthy lawyers in the world, thankfully, but there are also way too many who struggle. And I think part of the reason they struggle is because the way we do our work, not only does it not serve clients ideally, but it's not serving those who are delivering the services. And so I think that's one of the beauties of human-centered design is that it also puts at the center the people who are doing the work and let gives the lawyer a lens to say, okay, I can not only deliver services in a way that is better for my client, but I can also think about how I deliver those services in a way that is better for me and serves me as a whole person and meets my needs and goals as well. And so I really look at it as a win-win. And specifically for those firms that are in a place of distress, they tend to be less healthy places to work, frankly, for obvious reasons. And so I think that transformation really is a lot broader than simply looking at how do we serve clients better to improve the bottom line. Kat, what comes to mind is the lawyer who had an image of what their work life would be. To become a lawyer, maybe because a parent of theirs was a lawyer or they had become familiar with what a law firm environment is like from other places. This is very different. You know, are you sensing, are you hearing from students you're working with? Oh, great. This is not what I was expecting. I understand the excitement. I would be excited by a new approach myself. But for some, I'm sure when they hear a different approach, they're thinking, wow, that's not what I signed up for. I'm a fifth generation lawyer and I grew up, my father's a lawyer. My grandfather was a lawyer and a judge. My great uncle was a lawyer. And so I grew up in my dad's office in the courthouse. So I, I definitely had very specific ideas of what it meant to be a lawyer, right? Most of my students don't come to law school with that perspective. And frankly, most of my students have absolutely no idea what it's like to actually practice law. They know nothing about the business of law. 
part of my job, and actually one of the courses I teach is the business of law. Part of my job is to help them understand the industry in which they're going into. Because as students have graduated in their first year practice will write back and tell me, my first day of orientation, and this is an AmLaw 100 firm, students telling me, our firm throughout the day explained to us that there are two things you need to know or to do to be successful in big law. One, know your practice area. You are expected to be a technical expert. Absolutely. Two, know the business of law. So, but for my course, this young woman (laughs) would have been completely ignorant of that second half. And so, while, for instance, legal problem solving does focus on the tools of human-centered design, the first thing I do is give them a very realistic grounding about what the business of law is about. The history, where we are now, and what the opportunities and challenges are going forward. So I give them context. And with that context, so many of my students are like, I did not sign up to spend seven to eight to nine to 10 years trying to be one of those one in 12 or one in 15 or one in 20 who might get equity partnership. And understanding that that group of people is among the least healthy in the practice of law. And so giving them this context and empowering them to use different tools, to use different lenses, really gives them the ability to frankly make better choices as they are designing their professional path. I also believe firmly, based on my interaction with students, that the expectation of lawyers who are entering the profession now is very different than the expectations were even when I entered the practice 20 years ago. And I think there is a much lower tolerance for unhealthy workloads, and there is a lower tolerance for doing work that has been clearly revealed to students, does not fully serve the client best. The students are walking into it with a greater sense of expecting work to align a little bit better with the rest of their lives as well. My students are coming into it understanding process improvement and lean and agile. And so when they go into an environment that not only doesn't use these things, but perhaps even disdains them, my students are empowered. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the shape of practice is transformed in part because we have students entering with really different mindsets. Definitely the European heads of firms that we're talking to, they have made this shift and really engaging their earlier career lawyers in the activities that will change the firm's layout, meaning technology, meaning project management, meaning a different approach to dealing with clients. And there's a comfort level in saying to these lawyers that are joining the firm that are earlier career, this is an area, you know, especially if they express an interest in that area, this is an area where we could use your interest and ability based on their expressed interest in that area. And they're not limiting them and telling them, keep your head down, bill hours. I think it's terrific. It's one of the things that, you know, we're starting again to hear in the in the States, in these AM100 firms, that they are assigning these relationships with technology vendors, with legal process outsourcers to the, you know, associate level team members or the junior partners, because it's an appropriate assignment. There's a a much easier understanding and a lot of cases, just a greater interest. So I would say that's a credit to you and the people like you that are out teaching in our law schools and teaching a different approach to the practice of law, the business of law. Well, that, that's great to hear. And that, that makes so much sense. And it really, you know, aligning people with the work that they're interested in doing and capable of doing just makes sense. 
I can add specifically about human-centered design, I think that the other really powerful use of this skill set that should not go undervalued is that it is the core skill set for relationship building. And we all understand that it is relationship building that leads to a successful practice. And so when you have lawyers who come into practice with a deep understanding of these skills and having practiced using them, your ability to help train those lawyers to then go out and become rainmakers and be the strong business developers for your firm, that trajectory just got a whole lot shorter. My students come out understanding that not only do these skills make them better lawyers, but it's going to help them from a business development standpoint. And frankly, my students come out understanding that business development matters. <laughs> that's not something that's discussed in law school very often. Your doctrinal professors probably haven't even ever had to go develop business. The concept that your practice is anything but the technical application of your skill is not something that they're interested in discussing. Again, just another application, I think, of the skill set that should not go unnoticed. So let's reflect back on your own practice and your years in practicing and the time specifically when you were tasked with developing business for your firm. And hopefully that was from the day that you started or a year or two after. But you know, what were the strengths that you relied on, the personal strengths that you have that you relied on that helped you be successful in developing business? I will tell you for some context that I actually obtained a master's in communication. My undergraduate degree is in communication, human communication, organizational communication. And my master's is in that work. And I taught at the university level before going to law school. So I came into law school with a slightly different orientation than probably the typical history or literature or poli-sci major. And definitely with more experience and expertise under my belt. And I was really insanely focused throughout law school and when I entered practice on leveraging my knowledge of human communication and my skills I developed in that area. So I would say I refer to these things as superpowers because I really think they are. These are differentiators when you go above and beyond for clients and in your own professional development. And I think a primary skill that I have always really focused on is the insatiable interest really in getting feedback from those I'm working with, that is both colleagues and my clients, and really understanding from that person's perspective how they view my work and how I can improve it to improve that relationship and improve the value of what I'm delivering. And that requires curiosity, which I view also as both a mindset and as a superpower. But we are not encouraged or trained definitely in law school. And I don't really think in most practice settings to seek feedback insatiably, right? And in fact, it's probably often a negative experience for a lot of lawyers because they might be in an organizational culture that has just a really unfortunate system for delivering like annual reviews or something. And so feedback's kind of a dirty word. I think if you flip it and view it as an opportunity to learn what you could be doing better and also to learn what people really enjoy and appreciate, like it can be a really affirming experience too. But I would say that is one of the superpowers that I've really always tried to leverage and which goes across the board off so well with, I mean, people just really appreciate that I'm genuinely interested in understanding how my work helps them and where I fell short. 
No, that's a, it's a great point. And I think that idea of being open to the feedback, seeking it out, and then, of course, the fact that it can be good, I think that's terrific. It goes along with, let's focus on our strengths instead of focusing on our areas for improvements, right? We'll get much further if we continue to build on those strengths. Terrific point. You have a lot of energy about the work that you're doing, and you've really presented you know, for our audience a number of things that those lawyers starting out can really look to embrace, you know, that idea of understanding the business of law, that idea of, you know, really approaching business development from, you know, an early stage of keeping relationships healthy and expanding on those relationships. That said, is there additional advice that you would have for those partners, those young lawyers that are just starting out on their journey within a law firm, specifically in business development? I teach my students to really embrace ambiguity. This is a a design mindset. And by that, being uncomfortable with the fact that the problem may not be crystal clear, the desired solution may not be crystal clear, but that that's an opportunity to go through a process with a client and really find the perfect solution. I use the word perfect, and I'm going to flip that as well. I think another really valuable mindset, which is, again, a superpower of sorts, is to embrace the concept that failure is not a bad thing and that it is a learning opportunity. And that goes directly to, I think, a very counterproductive mindset that law students definitely are programmed with. And that is the idea that we must be perfect all the time, that we must be perfectionists. And that is such really a toxic mindset. And frankly, clients don't expect perfect. They expect you to give your best effort, but perfection is not attainable. And so the mindset that you can give your best effort and do a really great job that the client is thrilled with, and that doesn't mean it's got to be perfect. And it also means there's room for improvement. So it's really a mindset shift. And I think this also gives young lawyers permission to ask questions and be curious of those who they have the opportunity to learn from. So more seasoned associates, the partners they're working with, those relationships are critical to how they will learn to be good lawyers. And so if they approach those relationships with these same mindsets and display genuine curiosity and ask really good questions, they have the opportunity to really learn so much. But that requires us to really embrace the idea that we aren't always going to have the perfect answer all the time. And that's okay. And that, you know, really putting in the, in the position to be coached, to learn and learn the craft and learn the discipline of what it takes to be a really good lawyer. So those mindsets. And another thing I do with my students to give them a sense of empowerment, and this is what I would say to all new young lawyers, there are little things you can do in your work every day that embody the spirit of human-centered design. And one of those things is as simple as being very intentional about how you communicate. And so part of human-centered design is actually the concept of legal design, which goes to visual design and how we can make our writing much more user-friendly. We can make the way our documents look much more user-friendly and consumable. So I've taught my students how to take a standard memo that would be drafted for a client that any lawyer would look at and say, oh, this is brilliant because it's full of legalese. Well, you hand that to a client, they look at it and say, "Ah, can you translate this for me? So I teach my students, put yourself in the shoes of the client. Or if you're writing it for a 
senior associate or for a partner, put yourself in the shoes of that person and really design that document, that communication for that person. Be thoughtful, intentional, and that will set you apart from the new lawyer who just bangs it out the way someone else taught them, which is not going to be as effective. And so it's those little, you know, little opportunities to just in little ways differentiate yourself by constantly being curious and empathetic. No, I think it's a great point. You know, we had the pleasure of interviewing four associates. They have to be four women associates from one firm. And they were a mixture of third and fourth years. There might have been a fifth year in there. And it was really amazing. And it was amazing to see, first off, the differences in their approaches, but the engagement and how they were really striking out and creating their own brand within the firm. And I think that's great advice to our our folks that are listening that are starting out that they can, they have an opportunity, let's say it that way, to influence. Kat, it's been a fun interview, an interesting one, one I'm looking forward to listening to again throughout our process here. Any last thoughts you'd like to share before we say goodbye? We have had a great conversation. Thank you, Nicole. This has been wonderful. And I just appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation and share these ideas with your listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.